Men in our society are obsessed with their cocks. Speaking bluntly about sex is a trademark of best-selling author Erica Jong. From the age of 12 to the age of whatever, men are obsessed with their cocks. They believe their cocks are them. Straightforward language and a progressive view of female sexuality is what made her first book, Fear of Flying, so radical when it came out in the 1970s. Ever since then, she's been writing about and grappling with this fundamental paradox. We want adventure and excitement and we want stability. This is the human condition. It gets a little more peaceful as you get older. You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Malinowski. In 2016, I talked to Erica Jong about being a female writer, growing older, and the relationship between sexuality and creativity. I think Fear of Flying is an inspiring book. When it was first published, people thought of it as a sexual book. But I think from what I hear, it's a book that makes people feel inspired, makes them feel they can fly, they can be themselves, they can embrace their own talents. First it was women who responded. Then I started getting responses from gay men who would say, I read Fear of Flying and I realized I could be myself. I could do what I needed to do. Now I get that response from heterosexual men saying it's a book that inspires me. And that gives me great joy. I mean, it seems to be an inspiring book. When I, I was working on Fear of Flying throughout my 20s, so let's just say the 60s and 70s. It was eventually published in 73. It became a phenomenon in 73, 74. Then all the foreign editions came out in 75 and onward. And initially, it was a hard book to sell. Uh, the first French publisher said, French women don't need psychoanalysis, they have French men. Uh, the German pub publishers, who later had a huge bestseller that goes on and on, wanted me to change things in the book about the Holocaust. And I refused to do it. So it wasn't an easy book to sell initially. But then it caught on in all these European markets, then Asian markets. I think the only places it hasn't been published is in the Arab world. Isadora Wing is um, a woman, a young woman who's 29 going on 30 and says, as we do at 29 going on 30, now I want to be serious with my life. I want to be a great writer. She is, she married right out of university, her college sweetheart who, who turned out to be schizophrenic. Um, immediately married a psychiatrist to protect herself from madness. And she's married to a man who's a good guy, a handsome guy, a sexy guy, but they have really nothing in common. He has no sense of humor. And he's so Freudian that when they go to a movie together and they come out and she says, did you like the movie? 
he always says, what did you think? And then he analyzes her response. So she's with a guy who's not a bad guy, but is not her soulmate. She goes to a conference of psychoanalysts and falls madly in love with a British psychoanalyst who appears to be her soulmate. And they take off on a jaunt across Europe during which she finds out that he's lying to her, that he has a girlfriend who he's going to meet. But he's one of these pivotal characters in her life who makes her look at herself honestly. So even though the love affair doesn't work out, he becomes an important person in her life. He says, Isadora, you have to write that book. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to leave that guy. He's not for you. And often in our lives, we meet people who are pivotal. They may not become our partners forever, but they're pivotal in that they push us to discover more about ourselves. And the lover is, is that. He's a character in her life who makes her look at herself more clearly. Um, Isadora wants to be a great poet, a great novelist. And for a woman, that's an ambition that in the 1960s was laughed at. So her drive is to become a great writer. But she also wants to find a great partner. And it's very hard to be a woman and have both those things. It's very hard to be a man and have both those things, but for a woman it's even harder. So that's Isadora's dilemma. And also, um, she's very sexy and hot, and she keeps falling into bed with the wrong guys. Well, you know what Fellini said when he was asked if his movies were autobiographical. He said, my movies are completely autobiographical and completely invented. And I don't think that can be bettered. Um, certainly, there's a lot of me in my books. But there's also a lot of imagination and fantasy in all my books. Vanessa Wonderman, the heroine of Fear of Dying, is 60, pretending to be 50, an actress. She's had a facelift. She is terribly unhappy about looking older. She has to be an actress, because actresses live and die by their looks, you know. So, and her best friend is Isadora Wing, her, her advisor, her Jiminy Cricket is Isadora Wing. And Isadora Wing has become much wiser in the intervening years. So in many ways, it's a book about a woman in a predicament of growing older. She, I've given her a 20-year-older husband, and um, she sees mortality all too clearly. And she's dealing with the deaths of her elderly parents, her daughter's pregnancy, and being stuck between these two poles, a daughter about to give birth, parents about to die, and a husband who is older and ill. Situation people find themselves in at 60. 
Uh, Vanessa doesn't want to give up her sexuality. Her sexuality is also her art, her craft, her inspiration. You know, I used to say when I was younger, the muse screws. Sexuality and creativity are very allied. We know this. Um, when we fall in love, we write poems. We write novels. Love is an inspirational thing, but it's also um, sometimes not permanent. And in a society where people live longer and longer and longer and longer, you may not have the same partner for your entire life. So in a way, the, the novel Fear of Dying is also a commentary on aging. I have always felt that the passion to write is allied to the passion for sexual pleasure. I've always found that when I fall in love, I write more. Um, and often it's with the wrong person. <laughs> but we need uh, this drive. Why do creative people have such terrible romantic lives? Terrible romantic lives. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at the lives of Mozart, Chopin, uh, Georges Sand. Uh, you look at the life of, God, the great composers and conductors, Tchaikovsky, etc. They were so driven by their sexuality and they often made such terrible terrible mistakes. I get it, you know, and partly because um, the urge to create and the urge to copulate are very close. You know, creative people use it to stoke the fire. And they often use people to stoke the fire. And they use people as their characters in books. And they use people um, I mean, you, th you think of, well, Mozart didn't live long enough to get wise. He was 37. But, you know, put Mozart in the room with a beautiful soprano. And he wanted to write music and he wanted to fuck her all at the same time. And he couldn't tell one from the other. I mean, Dryden said, true wit is sure to madness near allied. True wit, they meant talent in the 18th century. We're very confused, creative people. But as we get older, we get less confused, happily. So Vanessa is less confused than Isadora? Well, she wants sex. And she thinks, everybody goes to the internet. Let me go to the internet and find sex. And she tries. And she meets an assortment of lunatics and fetishists that you wouldn't believe. Now, I have never gone to the internet looking for sex, but I have so many friends who have told me about it, and I tried to imagine what it would be like to look for sex on the internet. And I w I'm convinced that you would meet people who were just nuts. I mean, anyway, that makes for good satire, and I love satire, and I love to write funny scenes in books. So she meets, 
you know, one guy who wants her to be a little dog and pee on the floor, and she meets another guy who's into bondage and discipline and wants her to wear a rubber suit with a zipper here and a zipper here and a zipper here. And I really try to show the comedy of errors that sex can sometimes be. And certainly, I have had experiences like that. I remember once when I was single, I was being courted by a writer who I went to his apartment for drinks and we had a lovely time and we talked and we drank champagne and then after a little while he came out of the bedroom with a rubber suit with a zipper here and a zipper here and he looked at me as if to say does it turn you on and I am not into that okay so but he was a very nice guy and a friend and I said you know I just realized I had an appointment and I I'm so sorry I didn't tell you but I really must go so I mean that's as far as I've gone with that experience but bondage and discipline is not my thing I know a lot of people who think it's great and I have nothing against them truly but it wasn't my thing. <laughs> so I, I haven't had these literal experiences that I give to Vanessa, but I have an imagination. <laughs> I understand how wonderful sex is and I understand the limits of sex. And I think there is never a time in our lives when we don't need touch. You know, babies who are not touched grow up demented, right? Old people need to be touched. Um, we all need to be touched. Um, and I don't think we ever lose that need. But the genital part of sex is not forever. Um, and, and yet sex is a part of our lives forever. You know, Anthony Burgess says somewhere, I think it's in Clockwork Orange, he calls intercourse the old in-out. And the old in-out is, is great, but it's not all there is to sex. And we understand as we get older that sex takes many forms. And that's great, actually. Well, now your husband is eating. Let's talk about men. Can, <laughs> can we talk about men? Of course. Okay. I mean, it'll be an uninformed discussion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Men, are, men in our society are obsessed with their cocks. From the age of 12 to the age of whatever, men are obsessed with their cocks. They believe their cocks are them. And this is true of heterosexual men and gay men. And I have taken a survey. Um, I've said to my gay editor, okay, tell me about gay men and their cocks. And he says, we're obsessed with our cocks. And I know straight men are obsessed with their cocks. And when their cocks don't stand up, they feel useless and miserable and terrible and awful. 
So that's what I know about men. Now I think men could be much happier if they were not obsessed with their cocks. My ideal man is funny, empathic, loving, sexual. Well, I have a pretty good husband for the last 28 years. That doesn't mean we never fight, and it doesn't mean that we both want to have sex at the same time all the time. And it doesn't mean that there aren't times when I say, let's get into bed, and he says, I'm tired. But mostly, I would say we understand each other very well. And he has also a lot of empathy. And he gets me. And I don't think we would be together if, he didn't, if we didn't share a profound sense of humor about life. How we fell in love? How did we fall in love? <laughs> you came to the Yiddish theater. Oh, right. It, no, we were introduced by friends. Neither one of us had ever been on a blind date. We had both been married a lot to the wrong people or lived with the wrong people. Um, and we were both very scared and quite cynical about the possibility of a lasting relationship. Uh, he was 45 and I was 44 when we met. And um, we had dinner together in a restaurant on Lower Fifth Avenue. And we probably met around 8 o'clock. And we left the restaurant about 12.30 at midnight because we could not stop talking and laughing and kidding around. And it was, and the following week, we went out to dinner practically every night. And every night was like that. that it just, we'd look at the, you know, the watch and it would be one in the morning and they'd be closing up around us. And then we spent a weekend in Connecticut at my house and I got so panic stricken that he had to go into the city for a party for one of his partners in his law firm. And he called on the way back and I said, don't come back, I have a cold. Or don't come back, I have whatever. And he said something, I don't know what, but he refused not to come back and he came back. Then there was a weekend we spent at his house in Vermont and we stayed up day and night talking and laughing and sitting in the hot tub and telling each other the story of our lives. And then we met in Paris um, for a weekend. And then when we had known each other about three months or four months, something like that, I took him to my parents' house in Connecticut. And he met my father, who was very amiable and nice. And he met my mother, who just sat there and went, who has she brought home this time? And as we were driving from my parents' house back to my house, he said, I knew I was in love with you.
I knew I wanted to spend my life with you, but I had no idea why you might need me. Now I've met your mother, and I know you need me. Will you marry me? And we drove back to my house, a drive of about 20, 25 minutes. Dead silence. He didn't say a word, I didn't say a word. We were both so panic-stricken because I had just agreed to marry him. And we got married in Vermont near his, his house. And uh, we've been together ever since. That was 1989, August 5th, 1989. So we spent a lot of time together and a fair amount of time apart um, because I've had a lot of travel. We try not to spend time apart, but it's inevitable. And when we're not together, we're constantly on the telephone telling each other everything that's going on. And I don't think um, I would be, I, I, I wouldn't want to live my life without him. Mammals are not monogamous. I mean, look at the lions. <laughs> look at the tigers. Look at the great apes. We are not monogamous. Um, we aim for monogamy because we know that it's a good way to live your life. But often we fail. And, you know, many great scientists have written many great books about this. We want adventure and excitement and we want stability. This is the human condition. Has it changed? I think it gets a little more peaceful as you get older. And also, it gets easier when you have children and grandchildren because your focus is not only on yourself. Anything that takes your focus from yourself makes life better. I really, truly believe this. I really believe this. If um, I now have four grandchildren, two girls and two boys. My stepdaughter has, has a daughter. My biological daughter has a daughter and two sons. And as your focus shifts to a bigger group, you are definitely happier. You're not focused only on yourself, your hormones, your needs. This makes life better. Erika Jong visited Louisiana Literature Festival in 2016, where I interviewed her. The interview was edited by Caspar Beck-Duc and produced by Mark Christoph Wagner. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>